We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Acts 21 this morning, uh, continuing our study in the book of Acts. We're going to pray together, then we're going to read and look into this text. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, I pray that you would enable our understanding of your word and of our obedience to it. In this text, Lord God, I pray that you might help us to see what you are doing in and through the lives of your people, and that we might rejoice in the fact that you can still do such this day, and may we, each of us, be filled with your spirit for the work that you have called us to do in cooperation with one another in this place toward the building of your kingdom, the proclamation of your gospel. And, O oh Lord God, I pray that in our day, just as in theirs, you would bring the increase that is worthy of a sovereign, omnipotent, saving God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen now to the word of God, Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days... A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Menasen of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So reads the word of God. Once again, a passage that might not be on your favorites list. We might hear nothing in this text but a travel log that bridges between Paul's emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders there at the end of chapter 20, the close of his third missionary journey, and bridging that with his much-anticipated and even much-feared 
arrival in Jerusalem after that. We could hear just sort of a travel log. We could hear a logistical bridge. But it's actually another of those passages, I believe, that gives us a bit of a window into the life and work of Paul and his team in helpful and illuminating ways, precisely because of the simplicity of the subject matter and because of the common everydayness of the experiences it describes. I think in that is the beauty of this text. I think it could yield some profitable reminders to each of us in our walk with the Lord today in the everydayness of our experience with him, of our life on mission with him. So we're going to look into that today. We're going to see if there is some instruction, some modeling, some refreshment or understanding that comes to us through the very common, very normal, everyday sorts of encounters that this text gives us. But first, we need to make some introductory comments to remember where we are in Luke's story and in order to appreciate the uniqueness of what we're reading here. This isn't just a standalone passage. It's fitting in with the closing section of Acts, and we need to remember that. We haven't talked a whole lot about the overall structure of the book of Acts, except to say that the programmatic outline seems to come in chapter 1, verse 8, as it talks about the concentric spreading of the gospel through Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But there are some who have done good work on Acts that see it really dividing up into six panels, is what it's called. Uh, Richard Longenecker has done that and identified that for us in his commentary. It's very helpful. In 1921, not the year, the verse, Acts 19.21, in Acts 19.21, we hear that Paul is headed for Jerusalem. With that verse, that announcement opened the beginning of the sixth and final panel of material that's here in Luke's record of the early church, his history of the earliest days of the spread of the gospel, the spread of the word of God, his new covenant community. So the sixth panel, the final panel opened then in chapter 19, verse 21. This last action in, uh, in Acts sets out Paul's somewhat circuitous journey to Jerusalem. This is what we see in this final panel. His, his circuitous journey to Jerusalem, his imprisonment and defenses in Caesarea, his voyage to Rome, his entrance then into ministry at Rome. That's what this final panel covers on the heels of the three missionary journeys. But three additional things also catch our eye now over these next eight chapters until this history ends. One of them is the disproportionate length of this section. There's six panels in Acts, but fully one-third of the book as a whole is right here in this final section, 1921 through the end. Second, we see the prominence given to Paul's speeches in his own defense in this final section. There are five of them, one in each of the chapters between 22 and 26, some shorter, some longer, but given great detail, they seem to stand at the center of this closing panel in the book of Acts. And third, 
we see a far greater prevalence than anywhere else in the book of the we sections, suggesting that Luke is present and he's not having to interview others for this particular section of the journey. He's an eyewitness to much of what happens from here through the end of his history. So the net result is that it seems like Luke's purpose in this long closing section is really to spotlight and set the context for these speeches that Paul is giving in his own defense, but also in defense of the faith. As these passages, these speeches are studied, they're studied for their apologetic value. They don't just defend Paul and what he's done. They actually defend Christianity. They defend the faith. And that seems to be what Luke is focusing on in this closing section. So it's good to have that in mind as we begin into it. The opening part of this final section really is dominated by his interaction with the Ephesian elders. But now as we move into his movement toward Jerusalem and what happens from there... It's, it's helpful to keep our eye on the ball and to know what's coming. Also, in our section here today, we see the culmination of another purpose that Luke seems to labor to make sure that his readers don't miss, especially in this section. And here I'm going to quote from a different commentator. It's clear that he sees a parallel between Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, which was prominent in Luke's first volume in the Gospel, and Paul's journey to Jerusalem, which he describes here in his second volume in the book of Acts. Now Luke is silent about the reason Paul went to Jerusalem first before going on to Rome, but Paul himself explains to the Romans that a collection for the Jerusalem Christians necessitated his going there first. That's in Romans 15, verses 25 and following. And so we know essentially what he was doing, and this also explains a bit of the reference to his visiting Macedonia and Achaia. That's also mentioned in 1921 as he says he needs to go to Jerusalem, but he's going to go to these places first. He went there to receive the offering from those suffering but generous brothers and sisters that we read about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as he encounters them there. So he goes to Jerusalem first, and then plans to go on to Rome afterward. And there's something about his going up to Jerusalem that in Luke's mind needs to be compared with Jesus going to Jerusalem. This resemblance is far from being exact, wrote John Stott in his commentary, and the mission of Jesus was surely unique. Yet the correspondence between the two journeys seems too close to be a coincidence. There's six different parallels. Like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of his disciples. Second, he was opposed by hostile Jews who plotted against his life. Third, he, was, he made or received three successive predictions of his passion or his sufferings, including his being handed over to the Gentiles. Fourth, he declared his readiness to lay down his life, just like Jesus did. Fifth, he was determined to complete his ministry and not be deflected from it, again, just like Jesus. And sixth, he expressed his abandonment to the will of God, just like Jesus. So even if some of these details are not to be pressed, Stott wrote, Luke surely intends his readers to see Paul as following in his master's footsteps when he steadfastly set his face to go 
to Jerusalem. These are helpful things to have in mind. We won't mind them for the depth of their meaning here this morning, but we'll put some place markers in your mind so that as we pick up on these from time to time, moving through the remainder of the section, we can be well prepared. At this point, though, when we're seeing a ramping up of the intensity of Paul's experience, we encounter in the text his his concern about going to Jerusalem. He's compelled to go there. The Spirit has told him to go. But he's also told him that he'll face many trials there. And it's going to be hard. And this keeps being repeated as we move through this section. Some of it prior, some of it in this morning's text. So at the very point where we're seeing a ramping up of the intensity of Paul's experience, persecution told by prophets and by direct interventions of the Spirit, we also see the power of personal relationships in this text. Friends pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem, thinking they're doing God's work in this pleading, loving their treasured brother. But still, the whole atmosphere around this narrative is just normal, practical, common, everyday life. That's the setting in which it's happening. Comforting expressions from friends and conflicting priorities from those same friends, old and new friends. And each one of those friends, uniquely tethered to the Spirit, each one of them, they're not, they're not working against Paul, they're not tempters coming from the enemy. They're connected to the Spirit, each one of them, and yet there's conflicting input that's coming from them at different times in different ways. Sometimes this, the conflict coming through the same mouth. God is going to do this, but Paul, don't go. This is real life, folks. You ever find yourself in conflict with one another while both of you are trying to do what God wants? We see that played out right here in this text. Therefore, Paul and his team experience extended times of sweet fellowship with these people, despite these things going on. And that includes yet another emotionally charged corporate prayer time as they depart here in verses 5 through 7. Yet all this happens, all of this happens, think about it, according to the delivery schedule of a ship on which they randomly booked passage in Patara. It appears as though they stayed there um, for seven days tire when they landed, primarily because of the shipping schedule. This is real-life circumstances and the impact that it has on the unfolding plan and purpose of God. We can glamorize Paul's life and work. We can think because he was God's appointed apostle to the Gentiles, he somehow lived on a different plane than the rest of us, right? Like he didn't feel the beatings the way we would feel them if we had been beat because he was on mission. Like he didn't face the discouragements that we would face because he knew the Lord was with him. But my friends, his life was more normal than exceptional. He's a human being, fallen, following God, doing what God had commanded him to do and experiencing the same sorts of things that we would experience in the process. He had disputes with co-workers. Remember that from chapter 15? 
He had long delays with apparent inactivity, not sure what to do or where or how. Remember that from chapters 15 into 16? Almost certainly he spent these seven days here with these disciples due to nothing more than the ship's schedule. So with that in mind, let's just track with the three stages of Paul's travel here. You can see them listed in your bulletin. It's, it's pretty simple. It's just tracking with where he's going geographically. Paul and his team travel across the Mediterranean Sea in the first six verses. Paul and his team travel down the Mediterranean coast in verses 7 through 14. And then Paul and his team travel up to Jerusalem in the final two verses. Let's walk through this, see what we see and see what we can draw from it together, shall we? First, Paul and his team cross the Mediterranean Sea. As they begin their journey here in the opening of this passage, we're reminded once more of the emotional scene with the Ephesian elders at Miletus that had just been completed. As Luke writes it here in the opening of chapter 21, and when we had departed from them, sounds really gentle, doesn't it? If you have a New International Version, I think it gets at the heart of it a little more clearly here. After we had torn ourselves away from them, is how NIV translates this opening phrase of 21.1. The word here, parted, carries the suggestion of emotional violence in their departing. This was hard. This was one of those partings where you just didn't want to get up and leave. It was like that with the Ephesian elders. And that's the opening phrase of this chapter. We are already anchored into the sweetness of personal relationship as we get started on this travel log. Luke then begins giving evidence that he was present for this part of the trip as the we references begin to flow again. He describes their day trips in the early verses here, probably on smaller boats. You can see from Miletus to Kos, and then from Kos to Rhodes, both of these small islands on the southwest part of Asia Minor there with a port city of the same name. So an island small enough so that the city and the island have the same name. And then, continuing in verse 1, on from Rhodes to Patara, the southern tip of Lydia, which is around the bend and on the very southern border, but still the mainland of Asia Minor. That's where they boarded a seagoing vessel, sailed to the south of Cyprus. It was on the left as they headed east. And then on to Tyre in Syria, verses 2 and 3, some 400 miles away across the Mediterranean. From Luke's description here, when they landed, he says, having sought out the disciples, verse 4, their entire. Seems like Paul didn't know these people prior to his arrival. They got to Tyre, let's go find the church. And they did. These folks were likely refugees who scattered because of the persecution that arose following the martyrdom of Stephen. If you remember back in chapter 11, Luke told us that this happened, chapter 11, verse 19. So likely these guys are part of that dispersion. And they bonded with Paul and his team quickly. We can see that just from the simple details that Luke includes here. They bonded with him quickly. It also appears 
There were some prophets among them who foresaw his suffering in Jerusalem, as Agabus will later in verses 10 and 11 in the next city they go to, or next city they stay in for time. And also as the Spirit had already revealed back in chapter 20, verse 23, the Spirit had told Paul that he would suffer in Jerusalem. Luke records here in verse 4 some challenging words. He records that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This can really sound like the Spirit was giving conflicting input to different people. Like he was telling Paul, you must go to Jerusalem, though there will be suffering there. And now, through the Spirit, he's being told not to go to Jerusalem. But clearly, Luke isn't intending his readers to hear it that way. He's the one, after all, who's shaping this narrative to help us see that Paul had to go to Jerusalem, even though suffering awaited him there, just like it did for Jesus. Now, it seems best to understand this text here in verse 4 in the same way that will happen later in verse 12 there in Caesarea, namely that the revelation of coming suffering came through the Spirit, but the expression of preference for Paul not to go comes from the heart of these beloved friends and their families. I think that's the best way to understand it, and there's a fair amount of commentary support on that if you're interested in looking at that, but it is a troubling verse. If you read it just as it appears, it sounds like the Spirit said, tell Paul not to go. And if so, that is a challenge, but right here in the same text, we see how that would work and why, and I believe that's a faithful answer to that particular question. As Paul and the team prepared to leave their entire, after their seven days, the emotional scene at Miletus repeated itself. Verse 5, when our days there were ended, Luke wrote, we departed and went on our journey and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. They walked with him out of town and all the way to the place where the boat was docked. We don't know how far that was, but it was at least outside the town. And whole families came with them. Wives and kids, imagine that scene. Continuing on with verse 5, And kneeling on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Sounds simple enough, doesn't it? We'll come back to this in a bit. These were friends that Paul had known, though, for only about a week. But they felt compelled to support him and, I'm sure, help him prepare for what awaited him. That's what we see in this support coming out of the city and praying with him before he goes. It's quite possible that the only reason these folk had seven days with Paul was because of the shipping schedule. Just one more of the realities of life, transportation delays. But look what it facilitated here. Again, we'll come back to this in a moment, but let's move on through the text at this point. Verses 7 to 14. Paul and his team traveled down the Mediterranean coast. They had a similar <clears throat> excuse me, meet and greet in Ptolemais as they had had in Tyre. But this one lasted only for a day, we see there in verse 7. And then 
The next day, they departed for Caesarea, where they stayed with an old friend this time. Or so it would appear, Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven, Luke records here, one of the seven deacons from back in Acts chapter 6, that guy who, though he was a servant of the church and of the apostles so that they could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, is a guy who was a passionate evangelist. And most think he's identified as Philip the Evangelist here to differentiate him from Philip the Apostle. And historically, looking back, there is some blurring between these guys. We can get them mixed up at times. But this was Philip the Evangelist. This was Philip the Deacon. This was the Philip who was a messenger who was sent first to Samaria and saw the Spirit of God fall there as the apostles were sent to follow up on his evangelistic work. This is the same Philip who was sent to the Ethiopian eunuch and helped him understand the prophet Isaiah and then was taken away by the Spirit to another place. This is Philip. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Why it's important to know they were unmarried, I don't know, but they spoke the prophetic word of God. They encouraged and challenged people toward obedience, covenant faithfulness. They helped early church see the direction to go as God was still pouring out supernatural gifts on them to keep them on the track. Philip had a rich spiritual heritage there in Caesarea and a faithful, believing family. Verse 10, here's an unusual experience. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and we read this before. He comes, takes Paul's belt, binds his hands and feet, and says, this is what's going to happen to the owner of this belt in Jerusalem. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. So now his own team is speaking to him along with the people that he's meeting along the way, along this journey, pleading with him not to go. And then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? This isn't accusatory from Paul. I, I hear Paul here saying, give me a break. This is hard enough. Don't do this. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? One of the commentators used the image of, why are you pounding on my heart? New English Bible says, why are you trying to weaken my resolution? I have to go. The Spirit says so. This isn't easy. I think you might be able to see that in the fact that we're told that he spent many days here in Caesarea with Philip and his family. Sure, being encouraged in the word. It's one of the reasons why we might be told what Philip's family was about. Him, the evangelist, his daughters prophesying. But again, one of those moments that's like Jesus, Paul went on and said, For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. If that's what he has for me, that's what I'm going to do. And look at the response. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We entrust this to God. We'll let God see this thing through. And that's our title for today, folks. 
Let the will of the Lord be done. It's the statement that stands at the heart of this passage. It's the thing that brings the, the, the unity out of the tension between going or not going. However, those messages came, however the understanding came, and we see that they came through the Spirit. Whatever was in the human heart that either received that or fought with it, this is where it was resolved. As the people together said, let the will of the Lord be done. It's a statement that stands at the heart of this passage. It was, it's what Paul was pursuing all along. To borrow Jesus' words from Luke 9, he was denying himself, taking up his cross and following Jesus, even if it meant he was going to be crucified just as Jesus was there in Jerusalem. It's what all his friends really wanted, the will of the Lord to be done. All his friends, old and new, both of whom we meet in this text. And in the end, it's just what was accomplished, the will of the Lord. In these simple and somewhat random, and by random I just mean unplanned, travel encounters, we see normal people in normal life situations hosting a well-known servant as he passes through their town, hearing his story, Sharing theirs, responding, praying, urging. But in the end, surrendering to the will and guidance of their sovereign God, who's, who's doing precisely what he planned to do all along through each and every one of them. That takes us through that second section. Now we move into the third, verses 15 and 16, as Paul and his team go up to Jerusalem. We've seen these encounters. We felt some of the weight of them. Now, Paul stayed with Philip and his family for many days, as we read in verse 10, then finally got ready and went up to Jerusalem. One commentator lets us know that got ready, the way that's stated, may very well mean they saddled up the horses for a ride. But in any case, they went up to Jerusalem, that which has been long anticipated since 1921, Again, not the year, the verse. All along is now happening. They're moving to the city. Paul landed at his intended destination, and he's there. Now the stage is set for the dramatic events to follow. Verse 16, and Luke records, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Benason of Cyprus, an early disciple, this guy's been a believer a long time, with whom we should lodge. So still more friends joined Paul for the last 64 miles of his journey, and they brought him to a place of safe lodging. A matter of some importance, I would imagine, at this point in the story. Hearing what's happening, does it happen from the moment he enters the city? Do people see him coming and go out and get him? They wouldn't have known at this point. So friends from Caesarea took the trip with them and helped him find a place to stay. Simple little detail in the text, but a matter of profound importance. 
if we recognize what Paul was facing as he approached Jerusalem. That kind of support plays no small role in our whole passage today, as you've seen. And it adds not only some interesting travel details to muse about as we move past them here in the text, it also opens our eyes to some of the ways that assistance goes back and forth between believers. It could open our eyes to some of the ways that we even assist one another in and through even mundane daily activities as the body of Christ. It shows us the key role we can play in one another's lives as each of us seeks just to obey God and to walk with him, to engage in his work, in his mission, in his calling. We help one another in that process in much the same way that we see the Apostle Paul receiving help here. It's through very common people and very common circumstances that the will of the Lord is done. We might be tempted to put Paul on a pedestal because of his unique calling in his day. But Jesus is the hero in the story of Paul's life, and we've got to remember that at every stage. Paul himself wouldn't want to be exalted in the way that we often exalt him. He wants Jesus to be exalted, and even as we move through this, we need to remember that that's the case. Jesus is the hero in the story of Paul's life, just like he is in the lives of all of these other nameless saints and servants that he met along the way to Jerusalem. And just like he is in each one of our lives still today, he's the hero of the story. I think that's what we should see in this text today. I think that's what we should learn. I think that's what we should understand from this progression. Simple travel log as it is. Paul was in receiver mode through this whole section, not giver mode. His path was being confirmed by nameless prophets. He was receiving hospitality love, encouragement, sympathy, potentially even protection from largely unnamed fellow believers. And apart from Philip and his family near the end of this journey, we get no indication that he knew any of these people personally before meeting them right here. That's an amazing part of the story to pick up on. The actions of simple people can produce amazing results when they're done in obedience to God and for his glory. I'm reminded of John's third letter. Hopefully it's coming to your mind right now as well. As he talks on the subject of hospitality. Verses 5 through 8 of 3 John. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. 
You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these. And he's just talking about hospitality in homes at the moment and things that surround it. We ought to support people like these. And verse 8 finishes saying that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And that's something. These folk here in Acts 21, nameless people just receiving the apostle. Can you imagine what it was like from their side? Paul says, gets him to Tyre and says, let's go find the church. He knocks on the door and it's the apostle Paul at your door. Think about that. These unnamed people were simply serving God and they made an immense difference at a key time and place in history while they were just going about their daily work. Fellow workers with the Apostle Paul, they wouldn't have known at the time that they were contributing to a significant historical moment. They couldn't have known it. They wouldn't have known that their story would be included in God's eternal word as his Holy Spirit inspired Luke to write the history of the early church, they were just serving him that day, loving him, loving his people, living like Christians, praying. Look what God did. Look what God did through them. I'm sure none of these people thought of themselves as on Paul's level. I'm sure they talked about it long afterward. The Apostle Paul slept here. George Washington. Seven days he was with us. You can imagine a nameless interviewer saying, and what did you do during those seven days? What do you think the people would have said? What would we have said? Probably something like this. Oh, we didn't do anything. We gave him a place to stay. Him and his team. We, and we fed them for the week. And you know, when he left, we all walked out to the ship with him. Even our wives and kids, all of us, all the way to the beach there outside of town, you know. And we knelt and prayed with them. All of us. We prayed with the Apostle Paul as he was headed to Jerusalem. We didn't want him to go, but he knows the will of the Lord better than we do, so we stopped protesting and, and we let him go. Boy, that was hard. Yeah, it was a great time. It was a great time. Our church is still buzzing about it. We'll be telling that story for a long time. Our grandkids are going to hear that story. But no, we didn't really do anything. I 
I heard an interview some time ago with an author, a Tolkien scholar, who wrote about the heroes in the Lord of the Rings and how the truest source of power in Tolkien's epic saga is virtue, moral good. More than any form of supernatural power or kingly pride, moral virtue. In the end, it's two little hobbits who prevail by destroying the one ring and thus winning the underlying war that runs right through that fantastical trilogy. Two little hobbits at the center of the story. Tolkien believed that good fantasy has to find its root in the real world such that as we gain glimpses of reality in the midst of captivating fantasy, that's what draws us in. That's what thrills us. That's what fires our imaginations. And finally hooks us as readers into the story, enabling us to see ourselves in the story and to see the story in us at those points of reality. And this point of reality is from the real world, that moral virtue, moral good, is the strongest form of power that exists. That was taken from the real world into the story and set in a context that helps us see it and appreciate it all the more. Truly, moral good is the greatest, strongest good, and it can reside most powerfully in the humblest, simplest of characters, those who rarely even pick up a sword. And that's not just Tolkien. My friends, that's scripture. Whoever would be great among you must be the servant of all, said Jesus. Power in weakness, moral virtue apart from worldly strength. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, having listed his strugglings and sufferings, saying, for when I am weak, then I am strong. My strength comes from the Lord. My weakness is the means by which I enter into the very strength that God supplies. These same truths are being illustrated, I believe, in the setting and experiences of our text right here today. The significance of the contribution that can be made, even in the, the simplest actions when we're serving the Lord faithfully. So where do your brothers and sisters need love? Where do they need support? Where do they need encouragement or sympathy or perhaps hospitality? Where do they need it? Where is it already happening? And you really thought it didn't matter much at all. It doesn't make any big difference. 
Friends, my point today is not to tell you that it actually does make a difference. My point is to tell you, you can never know how big a difference it makes. Yes, it will make a difference. Obedience to the scriptures always does. The only mystery is how big a difference will it make? These folks didn't think anything special was happening. Their names aren't listed. But you can bet when we get into the kingdom and Acts 21 is read there. There's going to be some tear-stained eyes say, yeah, I was there. I saw it. I knelt on the beach and prayed. These qualities are the defining characteristics of the church, and they are never invisible and never ineffectual. The smallest and simplest of us can display the power of God as we simply serve him faithfully in the smallest, simplest of ways. And then the truth that we've seen applied throughout the book of Acts over and over again in many different situations, all the way from small circumstances to the very salvation of souls, the fruit is up to the Lord. He does with it what he purposes to do. Our calling is simply to walk with him in faithful obedience. The smallest details of life. Never knowing, never knowing when one of those might be a profound and a significant moment in the course of the building of the kingdom of God. Are you serving him like that today? Same spirit who empowered each of these is the spirit that we have received in Christ. And the salvation that was accomplished for them, freeing them from their inclinations to go other directions, it's the same salvation we're going to celebrate now together, remembering the body blood of the Lord. Pray with me, if you will, and as we do, musicians, please return to the platform and communion servers, join me at the front. Heavenly Father, enable us, I pray, enable us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling that you might use our simple obedience and faith that you yourself enable and use it to accomplish the purpose for which you have called us into your family. Help it not to matter to us, Lord God, whether it is a great earth-changing event that is facilitated by our faithfulness or a simple act of obedience known only to you. Help it not to matter when it comes time to be faithful and obedient. And now, Father, as we remember the body and blood of the Lord, the greatest of all miracles that you have performed, I pray that we might be empowered, strengthened toward that faithful obedience, recognizing the cost that was paid for us to be able to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.